Thompson dollars was Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Dead and Married. I'm your host, Ashley. And I'm Travis. And today we're going to be talking about the 1980 film Prom Night. And clearly you're feeling a little bit better. I'm feeling a little bit better. I'm a little bit hoarse still, as I'm sure everybody's going to be able to tell. But I don't have an alcoholic beverage in front of me tonight. I have some warm chamomile tea with some honey and some lemon to help soothe my throat. And some rum. And no. (laughs) (laughs) And followed that up with some grape Fanta. So to keep me jolted. You're the only one with alcohol to my knowledge right now. (laughs) This is true. Okay. Anyway, so Travis, why don't you give us the specs on this film? You got a minute? I I got, for you, I got five. All right. So Prom Night, uh, released in 1980. It was directed by Paul Lynch, written by William Gray. He did the screenplay and it was based on the story by Robert Guza Mm -hmm. Jr. Ratings on this movie are not awesome. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you. So on IMDb, it's a 5.4 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes is 50%. Metacritic is a 45. And that's not necessarily a new thing. When it was released in 1980, it received mostly unfavorable reviews. Uh, Gene Siskel, when he was with Chicago Tribune, referred to the film as a down cross between Carrie and Halloween. Agree. And uh, when Siskel and Ebert did uh, the 1980 episode or the September 18th 1980 episode of Sneak Previews, which was their TV show, I, don't remember, I think yeah, it was I on remember Entertainment that. Tonight or something like mm-hmm. that. I remember that. They were very critical of the ad campaign for that one and several films. They they teed off on Don't Answer the Phone and Hell Night as well, uh, saying that the ads have been saturating television for the last two years. And that the summer and fall of 1980 are the worst yet. They were critical of them because they seemed to all have the theme of women in danger. And they didn't care for that. Variety noted that the film borrowed shamelessly from Carrie and any number of gruesome exploitation picks, And that Robert Guza managed to score a few horrific points amid a number of sagging moments in the movie. Vincent Camby with the New York Times gave the film a middling review, saying that Prom Night's a comparatively genteel hybrid, part shock melodrama like Halloween and part mystery, though it's less whodunit than who's doing it. He did praise the film's restrained violence, saying that director Lynch chose to underplay the bloody spectacle. This isn't to say that there aren't sticky moments, and he described a few, and he says, this may or may not be the reason that the audience that I saw the film with booed at the end. So, yeah. Now, having said that, since its release... Prom Night has accrued a pretty substantial cult following, and some film scholars have even cited it as one of the most influential slasher films of the period, although I don't necessarily agree with that. What do you think? Um, here's the thing. I have already seen this movie a couple times. This was probably my third time to watch it in the span of my life, but, um, it was almost like watching it for the first time again. Um, we've, we've stated that many times since we have started this, we have paid much closer to attention to the films we are covering. And this time around was really no different. So at no point in this movie was I bored at all. I know that that's been a lot of people's criticisms. However, I do see where it obviously borrowed heavily from the films that you mentioned before, uh, namely being Halloween and Carrie. Those were two of the biggest vibes that I got. However, the flip side of that is that I can also see the other side that of where it influenced the movies that came after it. And so, I'll, I'll get into that later. So if a movie takes other movies' content and steals it, basically, and then people cite that movie... Can you, can you really give that movie credit for the inspiration or should the inspiration truly go to the films that they stole from? Not necessarily because there's a, there's a couple, well, one really that I can think of a particular thing that I had not seen done in the movies that it is trying to 
emulate. But I can see where the films that came later emulate, uh, they emulated the same thing directly from Prom Night and not Halloween and not Carrie. Okay. So, but I'll, I'll get into that. I'll let that. you tell me about those later. Yes. So there's a reason why, I know when you and I were watching this, we both said, this looks like Halloween. So in the development phase, Paul Lynch developed Prom Night after a meeting with Erwin Yoblins. <laughs> yes. Who had previously produced Halloween. Yes. Saying that he wanted to work on a horror film and had initially pitched a film about a physician that murders his patients. But Yoblins told him to utilize a holiday as the basis oh, for the goodness. film. So he picked a high school prom <laughs> and then Robert Guza Jr., had, I guess, recently graduated from University of Southern California and Lynch was an acquaintance of his and knew that he had written a story about a group of teenagers whose involvement in a tragic event as children came back to haunt them. Now, that sounds a whole lot like I Know What You Did Last Summer. Which is what I was going to bring up. So thank you for stealing my thunder. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. So that explains why this seems, why it feels so much like Halloween. Well, it was released 21 months right after Halloween, and I believe two and a half months after Friday the 13th. So I have... <laughs> Halloween was released on October 27th, 1978. This movie was released on July 18th, 1980. Mm-hmm. They actually started filming August 13th, 1979. Right. So this feels to me like a cash grab. Because mm-hmm. by August, they knew how well Halloween had performed in the box office, and they were just were trying to make money off of that. Right. But let's be fair... Most slashers that came after Halloween, that's what they were doing. There, there, there's a reason that they, you know, they had a few years spanning there that they refer to as the golden age of slashers, and that's because from this time period between 1980 and 1983 or 84, somewhere in there, where that's basically all you got was just direct ripoffs to Halloween. I mean, Friday the Thirteenth, although it is a great successful franchise in its own right is one of those, directly rips off Halloween. Agreed. I mean, it set up its own things that I would say people also copied from it later. But let's let's be honest here that Halloween was, you know, people will say, okay, well, if you're really thinking about it, Halloween is also not the film that started that. You technically could go with Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Black Christmas or even further than that, back to Psycho. Um, where they first started that, picking off one by one and, you know, the whodunit mystery of it all. But I really feel like Halloween was the one that took that and perfected it. Because if I'm being honest, there's a lot of people who cite Black Christmas as being one of their favorite films. I just couldn't get into that one. I think I'd have to go do some research and look at the movies that you just talked about and see how many years there were in between. Because, like, Psycho came out and I don't know that there were a ton of horror movies, at least none that they really, that I know about. Mm-hmm. That immediately followed after it. And and when did Black Christmas come out? I Oh, it was in the 70s, but I can't remember an exact year. Put me on the spot like that. Sorry. And then Chainsaw <laughs> and then Halloween. And I guess my point is, none of those spawned the immediate influx of so many films the way Halloween did. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, Psycho came out and the man made a few. Maybe Chainsaw or Black Christmas came out and they made a couple. Maybe Chainsaw came out and they made a couple. But after Halloween came out, it was like 10 slashers a year for the yeah. next five years. Yeah, bam, bam, bam. And if I want to be even more honest, Friday the 13th, while it did borrow a lot of things from Halloween, and they did directly, I mean, Sean Cunningham even quote, is quoted as saying, we ripped off Halloween. Like, he makes no bones about right. it. Right, yeah, I think I saw that interview. However, there's also a huge, huge influence of Jallo in uh, Friday the 13th. You have 
the killer's perspective with the gloves and the bright blood. And there's colors that are uh, colors. There are kills that are directly pulled out of like a bay of blood. I mean, it's they they borrowed from more than one thing other than Halloween is, is my point. Now, you must just be talking about, like, the first Friday the 13th film, right? Yes, not I Not the ones that came after. No, I'm not. Because <laughs> all the ones after that, it was just kind of like, well, we need some boobs and a machete. And then we're good. <laughs> right. So that's really about all I've got. I talk about the cast a little bit. There's only two of them that anybody's probably ever heard of before. Leslie Nielsen plays Mr. Hammond in this, and I know you'll announce the cast as you go through it. But um, he was basically the only really established Canadian actor that they could get. And this was... The one of the very last serious films that he did because I want to say after this one he moved into his comedy phase where he mm-hmm. was doing like Naked Gun and and stuff like that and then Jamie Lee Curtis uh, she plays Kimberly Hammond in this movie and they actually couldn't get funding for this film until she signed on so another funny thing about this is that originally they were trying to cast Eve Plum from the Brady Bunch I think <laughs> wow. she played Jan yeah she played Jan Brady mm-hmm. but like she was on board to do it until Jamie Lee's agent reached out and said that she was interested so they dropped oh of course yeah Yeah, and apparently jamie lee curtis they paid her thirty thousand dollars to do this film which would be i think the the adjusted value they gave was for 2020 was like ninety four thousand dollars i would say i don't think she got paid anywhere near that for halloween no well apparently in an interview she said that this was the first project she'd worked on where she made any money yeah so but i also recognized uh robert silverman and for I don't want to sound like a film snob here, but he he automatically popped out in my head because one of my favorite directors is um, David Cronenberg. And so, of course, I recognize Robert Silverman from the movie Scanners. But then, you know, to name a shittier movie, I also recognized him from Jason X is the guy that uh, our teacher or professor was trying to sell Jason Voorhees' body to. And he pointed him in the right direction or basically told him who Jason was. But anyway, so I... Yeah. Is that the old guy that he like called him and woke him up? <laughs> yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. Okay, I didn't recognize him. So yeah, I do that. I watch movies and it's always neat to go, ooh, I know who that is. So but anyway. Well, aside from Jamie Lee Curtis, nearly the rest the entire rest of the cast was Canadian. Right. And a lot some of them were just out of film school or acting school, whatever they call that. Mm-hmm. A lot of the crew that they were recent graduates from film school, which explains some of the stuff that we'll probably talk about later. But that's why we hadn't really heard of these folks. Yeah. And that's why all, I heard a couple new. of, that's why I heard a couple of stories in there too. That's right. <laughs> that, that took me right back to my bloody Valentine. I'm so damn sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Canada. <laughs> so honestly, there didn't seem to be a ton of drama. For this movie, the production part of it, um, the writing kind of went pretty well. There wasn't a ton of studio interference. It could be because they filmed in Canada instead of filming it here. But everything seemed to run pretty smoothly. They filmed it in about 24 days, 25 days, something like that. So everything seemed to go off pretty much without a hitch. So, I mean, as far as tech stuff, that's all I got. That's about a third of what you get on a Halloween film. Wow. <laughs> so with all that out of the way, are you ready to do this? I am. All right, let's get into it. And now it's time for your obligatory spoiler warning. We don't just spoil movies here. They are spoiled rotten. So listen at your own risk or turn back now. So before we get started, this movie was actually actually suggested to us by our friend Karima. One of our first requests. Yay! So far, she's been the only person to (laughs) 
request <laughs> send us questions for pillow talk or request a movie so thank you so much yeah really appreciate the love here guys <laughs> but we love you karima <laughs> all right you ready yeah all right let's go so we open up on an abandoned what is that building nuns convent convent <laughs> we open up on an abandoned convent and we hear the sound of children's laughter and counting. And it's a bunch of kids, like, I guess it's four kids, and they're playing, like, a weird version of hide-and-seek. Instead of the killer is coming. Yeah. So it's, it's the same thing as hide-and-seek. <laughs> Travis is making lewd hand gestures over here, people. Tell him to stop. But anyway, they're playing this version of hide-and-seek, and basically... The person who is seeking or counting is our killer, and they go and find the other kids, and as they pick up those kids, those kids become killers too until they stalk the last child, which is fucking creepy. Like, these kids have problems. Why can't they just play hide and seek like normal children? <laughs> no kidding. And Is this a Canadian game? <laughs> and... Once the the seekers are going trying to find the other people, they start chanting evil dies tonight. I mean, I'm sorry. They start chanting the killer is coming. <laughs> and um, as these kids are playing around or playing this game, uh, the next girl to be picked is a girl named Wendy. So she starts counting and we see three, like as this, bleh, I can't talk. I'm going to get my shit together here in a minute. Anyway, the little girl named Wendy is our seeker. And as she's counting, we see three kids walking up around this, or in front of this building, home from school, seemingly. And while it's never explicitly stated right here, they all appear to be siblings. And they are Kim and Robin, played by Tammy Byrne, Bourne, and Alex. And I'm not naming these kids right away, but with their actors, because they're not in the film, but maybe five minutes and Alex and Robin appear to be twins also. They're dressed exactly the same. But Kim has forgotten a book at school and she has to turn around and go back and get it. And so Alex is wanting to go on home, but Robin is kind of, you know, they've already seen Nick, a boy that they know. And Robin seems really intrigued by what's going on. But Alex is like, no, I don't want any part of this. So he just goes on home. And... So Robin goes in to see what's going on as we get our title card and our opening credits. Now, Wendy slowly starts to find the other kids and eventually runs into Nick, who is the last one to be sought. And he gets annoyed and he's like, now you've done it. And he looks very pissed off and decides that he's going to rope her into this game. She doesn't want to be a part of it, but he kind of pulls her into it anyway and they kind of start, I mean, it's almost like they're bullying her into this. So they start to kind of corner her and they're chanting, we're going to get you or the killer's coming over and over and over. And she's terrified. Like she's crying and it's kind of established just in these first few seconds that we've met her that she's a stutterer. So they end up getting to a point where they corner her in front of a window and to the point she falls out of the window to her death on the ground, a bunch of broken glass and shit. Evil dies tonight. Evil dies tonight, right? And I don't know what the fuck is going on in these kids' minds. Like, I'm, I'm sitting there like, what did you think was going to happen? Like, it, kids are dumb, I guess. 
Well, I think the part that disturbed me the most is that there's only, what, two of them? That even look like they're sorry? Sort of sorry. That they're sort of sorry about what happened. (laughs) I don't. The thing is, I don't think any of them are sorry except for Nick. He's he's the only one that seems like he might because the other girls are more afraid well, that they're going to get go to jail. That's yeah, that's what they say. I don't want to go to jail. There's one little girl in there with pigtails, and I think she started to cry first. Yeah, that's Kelly. And so she's she's showing some remorse, and the boy is showing some remorse. But yeah, those other two girls, they're stone cold. Yeah, but Kelly explicitly says, "I don't want to go to jail." Yeah, I don't. They're not sorry at all. <laughs> I don't think it's that she feels bad about what has occurred. But Wendy swears them all to secrecy, like nobody's going to know if we don't say anything. Um, And even though Nick, like we just said, feels bad about it, he reluctantly goes along with it. Yeah, they just leave her there too. Yeah, and and to add insult to further injury. Literal injury. Or death. The window, like the whole window frame of the window next to the one she fell out of, comes out and slides down and it looks like it probably hits her too, even though it doesn't show it. Yeah. That's one thing this movie does. It, It hardly... It doesn't really show the kill. Well, I wondered if that was one of the things that they were trying to rip off of Halloween. Maybe it was because Halloween is essentially bloodless, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre before it. So Yeah, well, this one's got more blood in it than Halloween, but still, they do they, they cut away right at the last minute on a lot of these. Yeah, they, they definitely did show some restraint. But later that night, um, we see that the crime scene is getting investigated by cops as Robin's father watches on, and he is played by Leslie Nielsen. And it was strange. It's always strange to see him in a serious role like this creep show, you know, because I'm used to him being that naked gun. Yeah. Goofball. So like peeing out of a finger. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Scary movie five. (laughs) But the rest of the family shows up and finds out, you know, they see her body and obviously they're devastated. And it is concluded that this, for some reason, I don't know how, but it's concluded that this is a sexual crime and they think they have a suspect, but it's never really revealed at this point, not till later, but they just say that they're going to question him. After that, we cut to six six years later. Six years later. Yeah. So the family, I, I guess they're there on the anniversary of Robin's death. They're at her, her grave site and our kids, Alex and Kim are grown now and now, um, Kim is played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and Alex is played by Michael Tuff, respectively. So, this is the day of the prom, and there's a... It, it, this movie's kind of hard. It, it's so simple. Like, I was just thinking about the whole story is so simple. It's really just a bevy of plots centered around this one night, right? So... We get to see all of these grown kids, the four the four kids from the beginning, um, start getting these obscene phone calls and going through drama over their prom dates. Um, we also have a setup of a school groundskeeper, who, like I said, who's played by Robert Silverman, and one more side plot of a deformed mental hospital escapee, the one who was charged with Robin's murder. And yeah, so... <laughs> I can get into it from here, but that's basically it, is we just have, like, four or five different little side plots centered around the night of the prom. Yeah, and it's kind of weird, because some of these kids don't even, they haven't even, it's the day of the prom, mm-hmm. and they don't have their date yet. Yeah, I thought that was strange, too, because, I mean, I don't, I don't know how it is everywhere else, but basically, if we have a prom, that is being planned months in advance. You know, you have to have time to buy your dress, or rent your tux, or... Uh, to pick your date and that kind of thing. So I don't know. I, it never really was a big deal with me. I went stag both years. 
So, and I just kind of, I think the first year I had a dress that was just given to me by my grandmother. And then the second year was the first year I actually bought a dress, but it was never, I don't know. I guess I didn't make a big deal about it as much no, as most people did. So It was dancing. I didn't care. <laughs> I don't even think I did much dancing. I just kind of sat and watched everybody else dance and hung out with my friends. But, um, so with the phone calls, we start with a character named Jude, played by Joy Thompson. And she's hoping that it's going to be a potential prom date because we find that she has not been asked yet. But she's out of luck because this is our obscene caller. And then we show her walking to school and she gets picked up by a guy completely deserving of the nickname Slick. Now... Travis and I were talking about this a little bit because I'm like, he pulls up in his van and he's obviously not a very attractive dude. In these movies, this this type of looking character would almost always be classified as your comic relief. He's Shelly from Friday the 13th part whatever, <laughs> but in a van. That's... Yes. However, he actually subverted my expectations in this movie because, I mean... He's confident. He's got a sweet-ass van. I mean, he Did just... Did you just call that a sweet-ass van? Well, aren't they all? No. Like, back then? No. Well, not now. Like, you had your sweet-ass Corvette or whatever, but in the 80s, 70s and 80s, I There's think... There's a big difference between a Corvette and a van. Okay, snob. But I think in the 70s and 80s, having the van was the thing because you could load up all your friends and go drink and all that. Uh, and I, we, I, we, I grew up in Texas. It's a shagging wagon. Here it was pickups. It wasn't vans, it was pickups. Maybe up north it was vans. I don't know. <laughs> but the important part is that he has literally all the confidence in the world. And Jude responds to that and she takes an immediate liking to him. And for some reason, she agrees to get a ride and a prom date, the guy she's known five seconds. He said, hey, you want some candy? She said, hell yeah, let me in that van. <laughs> I just thought that was strange. Like, you want to ride to school? Okay, guy I've never met. You want a prom date? Okay, guy I've never met. After he drove up on the sidewalk. <laughs> right. right. But it is, we do see later that he is also a student at the school she goes to because they. it shows a scene of them all having lunch and how stuff. Big is this, how big is this town that she had never seen him before? <laughs> I have no With idea. His, to quote you, awesome van. <laughs> Maybe he's a year younger than her or something, or older. Well, no, they're seniors, aren't they? So that's a thing, is that the girl that died, she was 10 years old. When you look at her headstone, so she would only be 16 right here. Yeah. So these kids could only be one or two years older. Yeah. You know, if they're seniors or whatever. But Right. But the next person to get a phone call is Kelly, played by Mary Beth Rubens. And the phone call says, it's been a long time. Tonight, it's my turn. And when then after that, we meet her boyfriend, Drew, which I'm going to say that every time, Drew. And she tries to tell him, hey, I just got this really creepy phone call. And he's basically blowing her off in typical fashion, having a jab at her. And then he's making sexual advances immediately after. He's that guy that does not understand what no means. Yeah, we'll get into that later, but... He's a piece of shit at any rate. We follow with the caller um, trying to call Nick next, portrayed by Casey Stevens, but just missing him as he leaves for school himself because Nick thinks that the phone call is from Wendy, our big bitch mean girl from the beginning of the film who swore everybody to secrecy, um, wanting him to take her to prom, but he's taking Kim instead. So in the other subplot that we have here... We have 
the man who has presumed to have killed Robin. He was blamed for this because he lived in close proximity to the convent where the children were playing. He was also known as being a sex offender. And when detectives tried to question him on Robin's death, he immediately evaded them, but ended up, as a result, crashing his car and getting caught on fire and being deformed after that. He's like... Yeah, he was horribly burned. Yeah. Um, and it, his name is Leonard Murch. And then we also find out in quick succession that he has escaped the mental hospital that he was at. So Lieutenant McBride, who is Nick's father and also played by, and I'm going to screw this up so bad, George, T- <laughs> I, can't, I can't pronounce it, Tul- Tulit? Tulitu? I think it's Tuliatos. Tuliatu? I don't know. Something like that. It's French Canadian, I'm guessing. I can't pronounce. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't say it right. (laughs) But he is investigating Leonard Murch's whereabouts. Murch's doctor is called in, and this is very easily or obviously trying to be set up as another type of Loomis character. But he's quick to Murch's defense in this case, saying he was a pedophile. Basically, he... Okay, I'm going to stop you right there. I just want to point out that he is neither Donald Pleasance (laughs) or... Dr. Samuel Loomis. See how I got both names right this time? Good job, honey. Now that we're not talking about that film. I get a cookie. <laughs> but we do find out that Merch has, in fact, murdered a woman, but it was to take her car. And the doctor thinks that Merch is out for revenge to wrong those who wronged him, basically. But yeah, that, that, was, that was what I took away from that is, oh, they... They've got this subplot of from it's basically ripping off Halloween and it's, you know, a Michael and Dr. Loomis character, but this doesn't ever go anywhere. That's one of my complaints about this film is this whole subplot, nothing results from it. Well, for the rest of the movie, it's, well, we're still looking for him. It's just this overhanging thing. We throughout. haven't found him, but we're looking for him. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they do find him eventually and then it's like, yep, yeah, we found him and that's it. Yeah. Like, I don't. Pretty I don't much. Know. But at this point, now Wendy is getting called and being asked, do you still like to play games? But she thinks that someone named Lou, who we've not met yet, but we will soon, screwing with her. And we find that she is obviously still a bitch and looks like she's pretty wealthy. And throughout the day, we get a melding of all of these plots it's, I don't know, it's weird. It's it's like, it's, it's such a busy movie for as simple as it is. It's so busy. It's got all these things going on. And it's, it's like a typical teen drama where it's like, oh, and this is going on with this person. And this is going on with this person throughout the whole thing. So. I suspect that they did that intentionally to keep you from, try, from being able to figure out who the killer was. Maybe. Who, I mean, no, he hasn't killed anybody yet, but from figuring out who did, who's And he's not going to kill anybody for an hour. Let's also point that out. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time before you get your first body. But to be fair, in Halloween, you wait a good long while. It's true, I mean, but the thing Judith is... in the beginning, and then there's a lot of movie there. That's true. The difference between that is, there's no suspense in this movie whatsoever for me. No, and in the 1978 Halloween, in that interim time between Judith's murder and the time that Michael shows up and starts killing people again, you, you have characters that you either like or you don't like. Mm-hmm. Like, you've developed an opinion about this person. You care about him or you don't mm-hmm. by the time he shows up. In this one, I don't feel like we get that sort of character development. 
And the thing is, is that even though Michael's not really doing anything throughout the movie, his presence is ominous. You feel him hanging over there. It's, it's kind of like his breathing at the end of the movie. You can't see him, but you feel his presence everywhere. And this film just doesn't have that yeah, for get me. Get away from me, Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah, this just, this was so sorely lacking. I was trying, <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to do it this time. You're what? <laughs> Stop it. Don't be mean. <laughs> We're sorry, Canada. <laughs> anyway, we meet Lou finally making his presence known, and it's basically because throughout the runtime, he keeps on fucking with Kim. Like, he's just being a dick, he's being a pervert, he's just being a genuine, generally annoying here. This guy's got future sex offender <laughs> written all over him. And he's got the most severe set of eyebrows I've ever seen in my life. Like, there's this other film called The Beast Within. I don't know if you listeners have ever heard it of it before, where this guy basically has like a locust inside of him that comes out at some point. But same thing, very severe eyebrows. So I automatically thought, hey, this guy reminds me of that guy. But he that that's kind of a thing throughout the movie is his just constant picking on Kim. And then we also have the side plot of, like I brought it up before, of Kelly's boyfriend who's getting too handsy with her and she's kind of doing the stop, cut it out kind of thing. And we get some tension between Kim and Wendy over the affections of Nick. And we get this scene later on at lunch where Lou, wearing a ski mask, pounces on Kim and forces a kiss on her, which was really fucking gross. And as she tries to thwart him, Alex jumps into action to protect his sister, obviously. And though he fights valiantly, Lou does best him before they are escorted to the principal's office, where Lou is promptly suspended indefinitely. Well, now to be fair, it was three on one, because Lou's two goon buddies were there too. Yes. So. He does have some goons. But uh, we see, and we did see it earlier, but I didn't bring it up, that... Kim and Alex's dad, Leslie Nelson, is also their school principal. So they once this fight is broken up between Alex and Lou, they go to the principal's office and Lou's like, oh, well, you're just going to take your son's side. And he's like, you're damn right I am because you've been a little shit and you're off. You're, you're done. You're out of here. You're suspended indefinitely. So Lou threatens him one more time, like, I'll be seeing you around or whatever. And Mr. <clears throat> Hammond takes his mask and throws it promptly in the trash. Yeah, at this point, we've got all three of your your most obvious suspects, mm -hmm. I guess. They've pointed them out. So you've got the guy that was in the mental, mental institution that has escaped. Yes. You've got uh, the creepy gardener slash maintenance guy, janitor. Yeah. And Because at one point, Jamie Lee is telling her dad, like, he looks at me. <laughs> right. Well, don't most men look at you? <laughs> and then you've got this guy who has sworn vengeance. So, yes. So yeah. the problem I had with this is that they made these guys just too obvious. Yes. For me, like when they go out of their way to make this, I'm like, yeah, no, it can't be them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Right. So I don't know. The thing, I don't know, with Michael, that was set up immediately. You knew who your killer was from Jump, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You knew who your killer was. This was one that tried to go back to that formula of who could it be? Yeah, I think, though, that for me, a murder mystery works better when there are no obvious suspects anywhere. Mm -hmm. 
and then it kind of comes at you out of left field. Right. I think those are the ones I like the best. When you throw a bunch of them in there and it's like, it's got to be this guy, it's got to be this guy, it's got to be this guy. When it's obvious that you're trying to distract me, then it, it takes away from the movie. Hmm. Interesting. I will say, though, that I thought the killer was set up well because I had no idea that it was this person. The first time I saw it, of course, this time watching it, I knew who it was. But the first time I watched it, I was like, huh. I'll be damned. Okay. Because I could also say that Mr. Hammond, our principal, Kim and Alex's dad, is also set up as a red herring because he was the one who was investigating her crime scene and he's looks like he gets really tough with bullies and that kind of thing. So I thought that they were potentially setting him up too. I guess my point is... And I'll is, get more into that later at prom. Yeah, I guess my point is that when you, you single out... These three were the ones that I, th- I felt were singled out the most as having a motive of some kind. Mm-hmm. And I just, the, the cast in this movie is not big enough, really. Because when you immediately eliminate those three characters, then it doesn't leave just a ton of people. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It really doesn't. And I like it. Like I said, I like it when it comes out of nowhere and all of a sudden at the end of the movie, you're like, so it was Mr. Plum in the study with the nightstick or whatever, <laughs> you know? So between a bitter Wendy and Lou, they hatch a plan for something nasty to occur at prom because that hasn't been done before. <laughs> Now, Wendy Wendy does say that she doesn't want to hurt anyone. So I was like, okay, so she, I guess she's not a complete bitch, even though she is, because she doesn't want anybody to get hurt or killed or, or anything like that. She just mostly wants to humiliate Kim and Nick at this point, or at least Kim, so then she can end up with Nick somehow. But we don't You know, from Carrie, we have it set up. You kind of know that they're going to do something involving pig's blood, but we don't know what yet. But this one, we actually don't know what they're planning to do till it happens. So. It's almost like their plan was, so the four of us are going to show up at prom together. Yeah. And that was the plan. Yeah. (laughs) So we don't, we don't really, like I said, we were talking about, you know, Throughout Halloween, we get these very ominous things and creepy occurrences and stuff throughout. But in this film, we don't really get that. Except for some randomly placed yearbook pictures of the four kids that the killer has ripped out of a yearbook and placing in their lockers and various other places. And there's a scene where uh, Kim and Kelly are in the locker room after Jim getting dressed and, and stuff. And then a broken or a mirror getting shattered. But I suspect that that scene is probably memorable for the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis is almost topless in that scene. I will say this. this Something that this movie did that surprised me is that there wasn't nearly as much nudity as I honestly expected. Oh, no, expected. There, there really wasn't. For for a movie called Prom Night and mm-hmm. you know being made in the 80s, 1980, mm-hmm. I really expected more of a Friday the 13th type. Yeah. But, I mean, they were as sparing with the nudity as they were with the gore, yeah. really. Yeah. That's so. true. But I got to admit, Jamie Lee Curtis stepped it up in this one. And I mean, she looked good. So, <laughs> Well, didn't one, wasn't there one critic that said she looked like a, a man? No, it was a review. I was reading a review that said that she looked like a 30 year old man. I was like, that's not cool. Like See, taking reviews and making a person like that. That's not right. No, it's really not. I, I, I've always thought that Jamie Lee Curtis is gorgeous. So yeah, that person needs to suck eggs. But anyway... <laughs> So, because of the broken mirror, of course, they immediately think it's the groundskeeper guy. And that's pretty much it, apart from some prom rehearsal and more just bullshit between Kim and Wendy. It's I mean, it's nothing that's really all that memorable in my yeah, mind. It's like a high school Cold War going on there. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> but 
we finally get to prom night, right? Okay. Everyone's getting ready or they're getting picked up, including Kim. There's a nice moment between her and her brother and stuff. And we've seen so far throughout that Nick is having some feelings of guilt and there was an attempt made earlier in the day at school for him to tell Kim what he did, his part in her sister's death, but it just doesn't quite happen. It's one of those things. So I will say that throughout the movie, I didn't mind Nick. I didn't find him unlikable like the way I did Wendy. Even even Kelly and Jude, none of those other kids were unlikable. Wendy was the only one out of that group before that was just really a shit. So Wendy is now being picked up by Lou and his cronies. And she even asks like, what are they doing here? And he's just like, well, they need a ride too. And she's like, yeah, can't they find their own ride? But it's, again, it's just tedious bullshit. And, but once we get to the prom, man, oh man, (laughs) is disco ever the theme in this prom? (laughs) The whole scene mostly consisting of outrageous stretches of disco dancing and not too much else. I mean, this this is our big climax, but there's a whole lot of time dedicated to disco. So I don't know if I said it earlier, but this the whole all this disco stuff, Lynch's sister's the one that did the choreography for it. Mm-hmm. And they shot the whole thing without a steady cam, basically with recent film school graduates. So even Lynch said that it turned out better than he thought it would, <laughs> considering <laughs> that they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> So we see that Kim and Alex's parents are chaperoning and Lieutenant McBride is keeping a watchful eye over the night's proceedings. And it is established that Kim and Alex's mom is not doing so hot mentally because it is the day of Robin's death. So she's been very upset. And there was a scene of her looking for a lipstick earlier and she's just kind of acting a little off, basically. And so I don't, I don't want to say that it's, unfair for her to also be a red herring at that point because Mrs. Voorhees was not a person that you would have expected to be the killer. So kind of the fact that she's been acting odd, kind of crazy, just slightly off center tells me that maybe that was another one they were trying to set up. So I don't know. I could be wrong though, but I did take it that way. We do get some very memorable, if not awkward, scene of dancing between Kim and Nick in an attempt to make Wendy jealous. Like, Kim's been doing her shit all night. She's been, or not Kim, uh, Wendy's been doing her shit all night. She's been trying to talk to Nick, steal kisses, shit like that. And surprisingly, Kim's being a very good sport about this because we all know how I would behave if you've listened to past episodes. I don't handle that stuff very well. (laughs) But I won't elaborate. And at any rate, she's being a good sport. And she's like, so why don't we show her what we do, basically? And she gets him out of the dance floor and it's very Pulp Fiction. You know, just this back and forth showing of these moves. And I'm doing them right now. And you can't see me. And that's probably for the best, but I'm doing them anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I thought they were going to have a (laughs) dance-off. I was pretty disappointed when they didn't. Bring it on, slasher style. Then we get our sex stuff, okay? So, yeah, we got to have our big setup, then we have our sex stuff, then we have our kills, so on. So now, yeah, get into the sex stuff. And we don't have anything too terribly graphic in this film. This 
This first scene kind of disappointed me a little bit and not because of the subject matter because unfortunately this is shit that happens to girls in high school. But we've had Kelly throughout basically getting pressured by her boyfriend to have sex with him and she's been asking for advice throughout the film like what should I do? How did you go about doing it? And she even asked Wendy like how did Nick ask for it? And Kim joked back with, well, how do you know he asked and it wasn't me being playful about it. So nobody's really taking her seriously and trying to talk to her about it and say, look, if you don't want to do this, you don't have to do this. You just need to be firm. Everybody's just kind of having jest with her at this point. So when it gets right down to it, she doesn't know what to do. And when he finally, I guess he takes her into a locker room or something And when he finally gets her in there, and I think he gets her topless and everything, and it looks like they're they're fixing to go for it. It's pretty hot and heavy and shit. But she tells him, No, stop. And he does he does back up immediately, like, okay, but at the same time, he is also kind of shaming her about it, like making her feel bad or guilty. Well, and then he goes back in, she has to tell him no again. Yeah, he starts kissing her again. And she's going with it at first, but then she very promptly is like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to do this. And then he's like, you know what? That's fine. There's plenty of other girls around here that'll do it. And of course I'm yelling at the TV and I'm like, well, you go find somebody then. Cause yeah, (laughs) I'd like to say I would be that strong, but you know, I have teenagers of my own and I know how I'd want them to respond. So, but at any rate, Unfortunately, after she did stand up for herself, which I think is really fucking shitty, that she stands up to herself only immediately to be the first one taken out by her killer. By the way, an hour in. (laughs) So it's nothing gratuitous. It's mostly off camera and it's just a slice of the throat. So we get the aftermath of that where a body falls and we see blood around her neck but it doesn't actually show anything. So I said some restraint shown, but I'm a gore hound. And so I found that disappointing a little bit, even though I, like I said, I didn't actually want to see her character get killed. So she, she had a shitty night, but, um, then we get another sex scene. So I just want to point out, she's a virgin, right? The girl that just got killed. I don't, I guess. And she was the first one to get killed uh-huh. as, as a, I'm going to say an adult, but as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Normally, that's not how it goes. Normally, that's oh, the that's final true. Girl. That's true. And it's, it's implied point. that Jamie Lee is not yes. in this movie. It's it, it is kind of a flip from the normal formula. Yeah, but I'm I'm also glad because Jamie Lee has said on more than one occasion that the character she played as Lori was not somebody she could relate to. She said I was more like Linda and Annie. You know that she would have been the smart ass, she would have been the girl having sex and all that, that she could not be completely, or she could not be any more different to Lori if she tried. So I did appreciate that in this movie, she got to shine through a little bit more with what her actual personality might have been like. Although none of them are believable as teenagers. No. (laughs) I wouldn't say 30, but in their 20s anyway. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, as I was saying... (laughs) Don't give me a look. <laughs> anyway, we get our next scene, or our next sex scene, and this time it's between Jude and Slick, and they're absolutely living their best life. So I actually like this couple here because they're not assholes. Neither one of them are mean. They're just 
they're having fun and they're enjoying each other. This is not one of those sex scenes where you feel like it's something that's gratuitous or, you know, just there for shock's sake. It's very realistic. And while they don't show anything, they kind of have this little banter after the fact where it's revealed that they were both virgins. It's their, both of their first time and they're smiling and they're happy and they enjoy themselves and they can't wait to do it again. So <laughs> they find a spot where they're going to go do it. And then guy has to pee or whatever. But then he also, for whatever reason, decides he needs to go smoke some more weed first. <laughs> yeah, when he was taking a leak, I kept waiting for him to get it then. Yeah, right. Because in any other slasher, that's when they get it. When yeah. The, when the dude goes to take a leak. Yeah. If you're if you're going to go take a leak in the woods, you're going to die. But he didn't. The thing that I found interesting is that this wasn't just like, it was a casual hookup, but they seemed to genuinely like each other. Yes. So yeah. I do appreciate that. Yeah. It, that there's some chemistry between these two actors. There uh, seems Instead to be. of just, all right, so you're both going to get naked and then you're both going to die. Yeah. So. Could you, more often than not, you get it where, like I said, it's more focused on the female nudity or um, just the act of having sex. But these people, it, I don't know. I Dare I say that it was cute even. That just, I don't know. I, I would like to see more of that in these types of movies, but unfortunately, it's just not always the case. So no. that part did wildly subvert my expectations in the best possible way. So I, w I was happy with that, and then I felt bad for any comments that I made for Slick when he first showed up, because <laughs> it made me have a lot of appreciation for Jude's character, too. It's like, okay, so she's a pretty cool chick. She's not, oh, I need to be with the jock, or I'm after this pretty boy, or whatever. She just found the person that made her laugh, and went with it and that, that was great so but anyway i digress <laughs> so unfortunately they are our next victims and this was a weird kill because she um jude's laying in the back of the van and the killer opens up the van doors and he has like was this weird pair of shears or something because even you were mocking like how he was stabbing her like we were like what was that i don't know but he was very enthusiastic <laughs> And he was like jumping up and down and using both hands. It reminded me in Ace Ventura when Nature Calls, when he had to go do the, the fight with the little guy. And the little guy was like jumping up and down and shaking both fists. That's what it made me think of. I was unaware that the Machutus were biters. I know. It was just such a, I don't know. I guess you're, I, I'm used to seeing like your Michaels or your Jasons where it's all about power. Yeah. They're big dudes. I mean, even like with Nick Castle, there was power there, yeah. you know, physical strength. And this, it's like, oh, you're doing your best, little guy. <laughs> you, you get him. Yeah. Good job. I don't know. It was just weird. But Slick decides he's going to try to escape in his van. And because of, I don't know, getting attacked and being scared, terrified and all that, he ends up... Is it a cliff he goes off of or just a hill? It, it was a, it, He drove off a cliff and somehow the van exploded before it even hit the bottom. <laughs> like it exploded midair for some reason. But that whole fight scene in the van where he's like driving around in circles in the field and putting it in reverse and back. That lasted way longer than I thought it would. It's like this killer needs to take some notes from like Chucky. Like you just pop up behind him and strangle him or stick a butcher knife through the seat. You don't like, I don't know what he was doing, but clearly you've got an amateur serial killer here. Who, Which again leads me into Stella stuff. hasn't found his groove yet. <laughs> that leads me into stuff that we'll talk about a little bit later. And thirdly in our series of kills, and this is probably the, the longest kill scene we have, is Wendy. Oh, about fucking time. 
but she's kind of stalked for a good long while. She, uh, le- she takes a break from the prom. She goes to the bathroom and then immediately she starts getting stalked by the killer after that. Um, and so, yeah, it goes on for a while. Like I was kind of just sitting there like, okay. This was a very long and uneventful okay. foot chase. <laughs> like there's a lot of her just standing in a room, just looking scared. So, so they didn't watch Halloween too quickly because if they had, they would know you don't catch them if you chase them. Yeah. Just walk quickly. Yeah. And you'll catch them. <laughs> right. So finally, uh, the body of Kelly comes falling out and that's finally when Wendy gets attacked with an axe. Again, we don't see it. It's off screen. Meanwhile, Lieutenant McBride is made aware that Leonard Murch, who have we have been thinking has been the killer this whole time, or not in my case, has been apprehended an hour or so outside of town. He was headed for Smith's Grove. <laughs> so that effectively crosses him off our list as being a suspect, not that he really he ever was. But as we have one kid left on our list, which is Nick, no one at this point has seen Mr. Hammond now. They say that he has disappeared. But it's not, I wouldn't say it's made that big a deal of, except for the fact that the procession is about to happen. And they're like, oh my God, where is he? Have you seen him? But I think that was set up so we could go, oh no, is it him? Well, so when the when the the janitor maintenance guy showed up drunk and said like, the, the killer's here or something like that. Yeah, he's, he started. And, he, the and they started coming. on him like, he's drunk, get him out of here. Didn't Mr. Hammond go with him then? No. Wasn't he the one that got, was it not? No. I don't but remember. then, because you bring that up, our groundskeeper is also marked off the list as our suspect because now he's Crazy Ralph. Yes. <laughs> You're doomed. You're all doomed. So now Lou and his goons because they can't find Wendy, obviously, they decide that they're going to go ahead with their plan. And basically, Lou is making this all about Kim. Like, we're going to do it, and then I'm going to get Kim, blah, blah, blah. He's a dick. Who cares? Um, but we find out what the scheme is, and it's basically that he's going to incapacitate Nick. He's going to steal his crown, and then he's going to walk on stage with Kim. So, as prom pranks go... Pretty lame. I I don't know. I just wasn't. I I remember I was sitting there thinking, really, like that's all you got. That's the best you could do. <laughs> Where's your pig's blood? <laughs> right. Yeah, you had to stand on stage with an ugly guy. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I just thought that was that was pretty stupid. But at this point, the uh, the brother's missing, right? Because they had to get a teacher to hand her the bouquet. Right. Because they established that they couldn't find him, and they were like, "Well, who's going to hand her the whatever?" Mm-hmm. And so that teacher just. Well, his wife told him he had to stand in, but... Yeah, but however, our killer... I mean, they they do go ahead with that plan. So they bind and gag Nick, and Lou takes his crown from him. Unfortunately, now our killer is mistaking He looks like King Hippo from (laughs) Punch-Out. Sorry, continue. It just popped into my head. I had to say it. Now our killer has... (laughs) Our killer mistakes Lou for Nick... And decapitates him, sending his head rolling onto the stage. This is the only big kill that we have. And it was actually pretty well done. And I mean, for those of us who watch this, we know how that gag goes. Obviously, they put a hole in the floor, had the actor's head sticking up out of it. But it was well done. I couldn't see where 
his head ended and the floor began. So pretty well, pretty well done. For the decapitation itself, I've seen it done worse, but I've seen decapitations done better too. So from a special effects standpoint, it was sort of middle of the road. Well, I got to give it to them. When he was decapitated, I did not see toothpicks sticking out of his stump. I'm just telling you. And I didn't see any hairy knuckles reaching up for the head. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Tazo. I know. I've I've seen better, but I have seen worse. So it was was just sort of a middle-of-the-road effects thing. And as for his head on there, yeah, you can definitely tell when they show the close-up that it's him with his head stuck through the stage. And it's really good. Yeah, they did a good job. But later in the, the fight that you're fixing to talk about, when the head's still there, you can tell it's just a dummy Yeah, head you can tell it's a dummy later. But, you know, they were going to have an actor sitting there for hours and hours while they're filming this choreographed scene. Why not? They nearly put that girl in the hospital that was going to get stabbed <laughs> through the raft on Friday the 13th. Uh, that's true. Kevin Bacon had to lay there forever when they were going to stab him through the neck. Yeah, but he's the one getting stabbed in the neck. Well, so this guy was just... Gross severed head. (laughs) And it was a dick the whole movie. They should have made him stay there. Sorry. Continue. Anyway, so obviously this causes pandemonium. And as Kim finds Nick unbinding and ungagging him, they're attacked by the killer. And they're attacked with an axe, but they are successful in fighting back. Obviously, JLC is going to be our final girl. She's going to kick ass as she always does. And she ends up uh, Nick manages to pry the axe out of the killer's hand, sending it flying under a table. And then Kim goes under the table and finds the axe and grabs it and nails the killer right square in the fucking head. But she didn't chop him with it. No, it looked I like think she it was hit the butt like of the, the side axe. or the back of the axe. Yeah, I think so. It was so. blunt force. It wasn't a, a cutting. Either stroke. way, though, fuck. That seems like that. Yeah, oh, that man. would definitely still kill you. Yeah, this. He would not have been conscious for the rest of this movie. Right. But he is for the next couple of minutes because as he's standing there dazed, he and Kim lock eyes. And then all of a sudden we see that there's a knowing look in her eyes, like something has clicked. And as the killer is trying to escape out the front door and the police start to show up and draw their guns on him and stuff... Kim follows him out, and our killer is then starting to replay the events of Robin's death in his head as he falls to the ground. And so we're already going, what? So at this point, I'm thinking dad, maybe, you know, because he's the only one who I would think, because the police have spoken to him, would know how that happened, that she fell out the window and all that. But I I could be wrong. I could be wrong here. But... Like I said, as the police draw their guns on the on the killer, Kim throws herself down on top of him, hugging and holding him, and we start hearing a voice say, "I killed her. I killed her. I killed her." As she rip rips, as she pulls up his mask, it is shown to be Alex. I did not expect this the first time I saw it. I did, but just because you told me. But. <laughs> well, you know what? You were going to play on your phone instead of like fully investing yourself in the movie. So I didn't think you cared. Yeah. So here's the problem I have with that. The whole flashback sequence where it goes back to her falling out the window, right? Mm-hmm. He wouldn't know that. No, he, he wouldn't have there. seen that either. Yes. How's he replaying something he wasn't present for? Yeah. Or is he not really replaying it and it's just showing it for our benefit? Maybe it's for our benefit, but it does show that when her body was laying there on the ground that Alex did, I guess he went back 
to find her when she didn't follow him home. And so because of the fact that he went home and left her there to basically meet her end, he blames himself for what happened. I totally understand the guilt piece. I just don't understand... That when he's like having that flashback and, and really oh no 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 I know what you're saying I'm there's, just saying yeah he, there's no reason for him to have known that I mean I guess it wouldn't take much to put it together you look up and the window's out and she's on the ground and dead but yeah or he was there and saw much more of it than we thought right so I mean maybe he saw when she fell and saw that they were standing there after the fact and put those two things together but at any rate he blames himself. For leaving her in the first place. But you place. think that if he had seen them there, that he would have turned them in then? You would think, but maybe he rubbed his hands together and decided... Mr. Burns style? Yeah, and decided that he was going to hatch a plan that was six years in the making, so who knows. But as he dies, Kim starts to cry, and that's where our movie ends with our credits rolling over the abandoned convent. So, Travis, what do you think about Prom Night? So as far as this movie goes, I don't, I'm, I'm sort of, I guess I'm kind of with the, the reviewers on this. I'm, I'm middle of the road. I don't dislike it, but I don't really like it either. I feel like they spent too much time pointing out this must be the killer. This must be the killer. This must be the killer. You know, I felt they spent too much time on disco and I like disco. Yeah. They spent way too much time on disco. <laughs> and one of the songs they used, I've, I've yeah, heard it somewhere. Didn't you notice it? Oh, it well, was a ripoff of another song. It was it a ripoff of I Will Survive, but it was like... Love Me Till I Die. It's yeah. like, love me till I die. And well, it's apparently obviously... they released this soundtrack in Japan and they loved it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as the characters go, I could have used a little more character development and a little yes. less teen drama. Mm-hmm. Just because I didn't really have a connection to any characters by the time we got to the end. Um, I feel like uh, Van Guy and the girl that he hooked up with, I honestly could have spent a little bit more time with them because I felt like that interaction between those two characters was more genuine than it was between any of the rest of them. Right. I would have cut the scene where Wendy's in the bathroom complaining about not having enough eyeliner because she already looked like fucking Dave Navarro. Why does she need more... (laughs) Mascara. Mascara. (laughs) Um, You can never have too much mascara. I think I told you that while we were watching it. uh, No, no, no. (laughs) It's possible. I don't know. I just It feels like the movie feels rushed to me. I think. I think that's what it is. I don't feel like the script was refined enough. I think the movie had a lot of potential. They just, they were in a hurry to get it done. And so some of it just feels like it, there was more like that interact, like again, like again, Van Guy. And slick. His, slick. Okay. <laughs> Van. I don't Van Gogh. Yeah. His van did go it off did the cliff. And exploded before it hit the ground. <laughs> but I feel like there was more there. They just didn't explore it. Probably could have spent some more time with Jamie Lee's character where she's not uh, just being jealous of Wendy trying to move in on her man. She wasn't. Or reacting it to that. It was reacting to that, Because a lot yes. of the time when she's on screen, that's just her reacting to Wendy being a bitch. Yes. Or and, Lou being a pig. And she's a better actress than that. I mean, give her more than just reaction faces to Wendy stealing a kiss from her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. You know, I, Leslie Nielsen's a good actor. I could have used probably a little bit more screen time with him because he's a legit actor. Yes. If you look at his old stuff. Now, if you look at Naked Gun, you're going to be like, no, he's not. And most people know him for that. But, like, he did westerns and shit before then. The guy's got some some good acting chops. I just don't feel like, why spend the money if you're not going to utilize them? Mm-hmm. Really. And he was really fucking intimidating in Creep Show. Yeah, I mean, he can, he can really act his ass off. Mm-hmm. They just didn't use it. I feel like they spent too much time with the, the less polished actors and actresses. And they could have added more depth to the movie by sticking with... Or adding more time with the things that mattered and with the actor, the actors, singular, and actress, singular, that had legitimate skill. 
or had more developed skill. Mm-hmm. To be fair, it mm-hmm. wasn't that those other ones were bad. They just hadn't done it as much as Nielsen and Curtis. Right. Does that well, make sense? I'm not trying to shit on Even acting. Curtis hadn't had too many credits under her belt at this time. No, she didn't. But she had already done Halloween in the Fog, and she'd done a couple other things. So, but for a Was The films, Fog before this? Yes. Really? Yeah. It I filmed. Th- that was the film she did right before this one. Wow. That's so, crazy. I would have really have thought this was before The Fog. Nope. That seemed, for some reason, later in that time period. Nope. Uh, the Fog released in February. This one released in June or July. But that could be because in The Fog she was playing an adult, so maybe that's what confuses me, is she go from a teenager to an adult back to a teenager, so... Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's... I, w- I don't necessarily need more gore. I feel like they managed that pretty well. She was banging Tom Atkins. Yeah. Lucky ass. That doesn't anyway. have anything to do... <laughs> With this, I just want to remind you that in Lethal Weapon, he's a heroin dealer. Okay? You know what? Unfortunately, unfortunately, we are not talking about Lethal Weapon. I wish we were talking about Lethal Weapon, but we're not. Yeah. But, again, I don't necessarily need more blood and gore. I don't need that. I just need better story. I think that's mm-hmm. what it boils down to. I need a better story. I can see that, yeah. So, what do you think? I guess I'm like you. where I'm not really sure how I feel about this movie. I'm going to have to marinate on it definitely for a little bit. And I might have to watch it another couple of times to get a real definitive opinion about how I feel about it. But for now, I will say it's not the worst movie I've ever seen. It's not the best movie I've ever seen. But like you said, just kind of somewhere there in the middle. I, uh, after watching it, yeah. They, I, it feels like they left a lot on the table. I can see where this was one that probably got forgotten there for a good long while but my my issues are largely the same as the issues you have and that's that the potential was there they could have done so much with this and I was going throughout the film as I was watching going why didn't they do this why didn't they do that and I like you said maybe it's because it was rushed what did you how long did you say they filmed this in like, like 24 days yeah so and, and I didn't find anything where the script went through like a ton of rewrites and different screenplay writers and all that stuff. It seems like they just kind of showed up and said, this is what we got. And they said, good, do it. Yeah. So it just unfortunately seems like a cash grab to um, piggyback off of Halloween. So, it, was, it was attached to a studio I'd never heard of before out yeah. of Canada. So, I mean, it's not like they had a big, it's not like Universal or Paramount or somebody was behind this thing pushing it mm-hmm. or, or even a COD. Yeah. You know. Well, I want to say Compass and... Uh, New World and stuff, those weren't really big production companies either, but well, they, they weren't, gave but they us had, classics. But they had talent. Mm-hmm. And this production company, I still don't know who they are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Let's see. Things I did like about it. I did like our characters of Jude and Slick. I think I mentioned that already. Um, I did like that they took some tropes that any other time I would have thought were standard and did kind of flip them on their head a little bit. So there were some things I didn't expect necessarily. But apart from that, a lot of it was very formulaic. Um, like I said, there wasn't... At no point did I get scared or was I stressed out or nervous. It just wasn't very tense for me. Um, there wasn't a lot of suspense. Well, that's because they were pointing out potential candidates left and right like it could be this one it could be this one yeah so like, okay it, it could be anybody so yeah that that's the thing i didn't like that there were just blatant ripoffs one after the other um however i can see why something like this would get chosen to inspire a movie like scream 
So kind of brought that up earlier that yes, this movie ripped off of the movies, the better movies that came before it. However, I will say that I could see Scream all over this movie. I know what you did last summer. And I know what you did last summer. Yes. And so bringing up I know what you did last summer, one of my big complaints about this film is, is that's how it started. You had these four kids that committed a horrible crime and had the secret and they did nothing with that. I feel like they should have expanded upon that and maybe had these kids showing some guilt or how this event affected them personally, but they didn't. Instead, apart from Nick, none of the kids acted like it ever fucking happened. And you mean to tell me that Wendy never went around to those other kids and told them to keep their fucking mouth shut? Yeah. Yeah. She was the Barry of that group. Yeah. You know, she should have been choking people to to her grave, you know, all that shit. But no, everybody just acted like it never happened. And it's like, wouldn't you feel some guilt about that? Wouldn't that fuck you up a little bit? Give you some PTSD maybe, but because you killed a child. You know, she was younger than they were. I think, what, she was 10? She was 10 years old. Yeah. That, for me, that's something that would stick with you forever. So, I just didn't find it believable that it didn't affect them at all. It's like children of the corn. Yeah, and even Nick, yes, it did show him feeling some guilt about it, but I don't think it was enough. But then he got over it. Yeah. And he went to prom. Exactly. And, yeah, it showed that he was trying to tell Kim Oh, hey, look, this one time I kind of accidentally killed your sister. He had six years. (laughs) Exactly. And then the ending of the film was so abrupt that we didn't get that confrontation. You know, know, now she's going to think, well, my brother was responsible or whatever. I would have loved for the revelation to be had that Nick had a hand in it. And so did these other three kids. And that's why this happened. Yeah, nobody ever spilled the... Kool-Aid or tea or whatever it is you say. Nobody <laughs> let tea. the cat out. <laughs> Nobody spilled the hot tea. Yes. Yeah. I agree, though. I, that would have been good, and that is something they left up. But when I was first doing the research, and I saw that where they were saying that, you know, this has been a, turned into kind of a cult film, and it's inspired a lot of other things, mm-hmm. I was like, no, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But then after watching it and then talking through it, I can see it. But I can see how it inspired other films because it left so many undeveloped things on the table for other filmmakers to pick it up and run with, like Scream. Yes. Like, I know what you did last summer. Those are the only two I can think of right now. (laughs) (laughs) But But you know what I mean? They left There was so much unfinished business in this movie that I can see where it would inspire another filmmaker to say, hey, that was a good idea, but they didn't really flesh it out. So I'm going to take it and make a movie out of that. Right. Exactly. And it worked, clearly. Yeah. Well, Kevin Williamson watched Prom Night at any rate, because he did both of those films, so or at least helped write them. But yeah, you could see where <laughs> you could see where he directly inspired Scream also with the idea of the red herring trope, because that like we have said a bunch of times already, this was brought up throughout the movie. And the only thing that I could hear in my fucking head watching this movie was Randy fucking Meeks screaming everybody's a suspect. So (laughs) that's all I got was like, this person is, and this person is, and oh wait, maybe this person is, and this person is. And so I could definitely see and appreciate where they took a film that probably might've largely been forgotten and given it new life. I bet a bunch of people who had never heard of Prom Night before went and gave that film a chance now because a bigger movie paid homage 
to the people that inspired it. You know what I mean? So I will say good for Kevin Williamson and good for Wes Craven for doing that. Yeah. I mean, it was, even though the critical reviews weren't great when this movie came out and probably for the same reasons that we're talking about, but it, um, I think it grossed 15 million, Mm -hmm. uh, theatrical box or domestic box office when it was in theaters on a one and a half million dollar budget. So they made all their money back. And it was like the number one horror film in Canada for a long time. Yeah. For, said, for a Canadian film, that it's is. Not a, it's not a bad movie, but if I'm going to watch Canadian horror, I think I'm going to stick to my bloody Valentine. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Sound good to you, eh? Yep. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but anyway, but yeah, I guess I, I read a, a couple of reviews where everybody was saying, well, they're just clearly ripping off a carry. I didn't get that. That so much. The only thing I took from their ripping off Carrie was we're gonna get this girl back at prom. Yes. That was that was it. Like we're gonna do a prank. And at the prom. fact and that, that was... it's set at the prom. Yeah. So I don't know. Yes, that's an obvious thing to take from it is oh well I'm pissed off at this girl so I'm gonna do something horrible to her to prom. Sure, but I don't felt they leaned as hard into that movie as they did Halloween or Friday the Thirteenth. It's just a basic setting. And to some extent, a motive. Yeah. yeah. We're going to embarrass this girl at a, at a prom, but that that's about where it stops. Yeah. Like, this is not the big carry ripoff that the critics made it sound out no. to, to be. Because I, I didn't get those uh, vibes throughout the film. I got Halloween vibes, for sure, and not in the good ways like cinematography or score because i don't even remember a score in this movie to be honest i just remember disco just disco music yeah (laughs) um and a sad song at the uh, during the credits but yeah that's about it but so i will go ahead and say go ahead and say i'm sorry guys every once in a while i try to keep my texan in the box but I can't always help it. So I'm like, I'm going to go ahead and say, <laughs> so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to go. You told me to stop saying that. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say, watch it. Because if nothing else, you can see where the later slashers were inspired. So don't. And if nothing else, Jamie Lee Curtis looks Fucking fantabulous in it, so <laughs> there's that. Yeah, I think I'll give it a watch too. <laughs> Not because of Jamie Lee Curtis necessarily. It's just that you said that immediately after, you're like, yeah. Well, now you got me thinking about Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> but I think, I, yeah, I would say I'd still say give it a watch. I mean, there's a 50-50 chance you're either going to like it or you're not, but it, it is, it's part of film history. Yes. Let me put it that way. Yes, absolutely. It's more watch it as a part of film history than watch it as this is a movie that's going to change your life. It will show you where the rest, where other things came from. Mm-hmm. You're, you're sort of watching the, I don't know, the grandfather of some of the movies that came later, I suppose. And who knows, if you're an aspiring filmmaker, maybe you can take one of those threads that they left open and come up with something for yourself. Worked for Kevin Williamson, didn't it? Shh. There's more than one thread in this movie. It looks like a fucking <laughs> pom-pom. It's just threads everywhere. But I think that's it. Yeah, guys. I think we're going to call it good. And we hope that you enjoyed this review. Or we're glad that you're here with us every week listening to us. Just bullshit about this stuff. We appreciate you. And we hope that you're back next week and the week after that. 
and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. And we really hope that you will come back the next days and stuff. Unfortunately, that's going to have to be after the start of the new year because Travis is going to, I think we've touched on this a little bit. Uh, he's going to go start some job training and he's going to be gone for a bit. And the holidays coming and all that. So we're going to go ahead and call this season one, guys. And uh, we are going to be back. We're going to get all this stuff figured out. Um, and prop- I think we've discussed coming back in February, right? Is that- yeah. yeah. Well, I think February is good. It'll give us time to balance out the changes that are coming. Yeah. And we've already discussed what our lineup is going to be in February. I've got some great ideas. I have decided that I'm going to finally fucking cover Hellraiser because I think we've decided we're going to go with, you know, the love theme for February. And what better way than to tell the darkest love story of all? I mean, it's just my opinion. Yeah, that is just your opinion. (laughs) (laughs) You are going to let us do a leprechaun movie in there somewhere, right? For St. Patrick's Day? St. Patrick's Day. I'm like, what are you talking about February? (laughs) I'm not talking about February. I'm talking about after February. (laughs) Yes. Maybe for the month of March, we'll just cover the leprechaun series. What about that? I can do that. (laughs) Those are funny. That'll be fun. (laughs) That's more my jam. Funny. Yeah. Like, otherwise, if it was up to you, we'd be covering Boondock Saints. Yes. (laughs) At any rate. But yeah, guys, this is going to be the end of our, our first season and... We appreciate you so much hanging out with us for, I think, what is this, 20 episodes now we've got under our belt? Something like that. Um, if you include Pillow Talk, I think we're we're about 20. Yeah. Thank you guys so fucking much for being here for us, for supporting us, and, and giving us the confidence to continue and turning us into a real thing. Like, you, you don't know how much it means to us, for real. So thank you. So yeah, hopefully we'll come back in February. We'll crank out another 20. I mean, it's almost like a show. The show gives you about like 20, 22 episodes or so. I don't know. Like Supernatural. (laughs) I'll take your word for it. I have no idea how many episodes are in the season. (laughs) It's something like that. But um, but yeah, we'll be back in February. We'll we'll cover some, some classics and maybe throw in a few that are not. We'll just have to see. But we will be back. And again, guys, just... Thank you for a tremendous first season, and we'll see you in February, guys. We love you guys. Bye. Bye. Hello, Deadites. Quick reminder that you can find us on the interwebs. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as SpookyMom83 and Travis on Twitter as TravisL80 and find our official page on Instagram and Twitter at Dead and Married. If you have any questions or suggestions for us, email us at deadandmarried at yahoo.com. See ya. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode in Dead of... It was released, like... 20 months, 20, bleh. They saw him out by uh, Liam Neeson. So, so with, with all that out, out of the way, <laughs> so with all of that out of the way, are we ready to do this? Yeah, did you get all that out of your system? I got that all out of my system. <laughs> okay, let's do this. Does, don't mend most, most men, bleh, bleh, bleh. Ooh, great Fanta down the front of my shirt. Nice. Sorry, carry That's on. Okay. Sorry, everybody knows you got to be purple stained <laughs> on the front of your shirt now. You and your great Fanta, but... Our bullshitting, we're glad you come, you put us on every week. I'm going to cough again. God damn it. <laughs>